The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations Be Present, The Diane Ray Show Welcome, welcome to the show, everybody. I'm so glad you could join me today. I am really excited about my guest, and I'm anxious to get the information out there for all of you. So thank you for tuning in if you're joining me live today on the air or if you happen to be catching the podcast later. So today's show is really special. If you're like me and you're a child of the 70s, you did not grow up with the Power Rangers or Ninja Turtles. I guess that was more in the 80s. But you probably <laughs> no, spent a, a lot of time as a kid. If uh, if you're around, around my age, you spent a lot of time as a kid in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. So with the recent Fred Rogers documentary and the Tom Hanks movie, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, people are being reminded of Fred Rogers' message of love and, and acceptance and the way he was able to talk to children about difficult subjects and just what a beautiful human being that, that he really was. So I'm excited today to welcome my guest. And my guest today, Francois Clemens, was a close friend of Fred Rogers, and he made history when he created the role of Officer Clemens on the TV show Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as the first African-American actor to have a recurring role on a children's program. And Francois is also an accomplished singer and teacher among his many achievements. He has won a Grammy. He won that in 1973 for his work on a recording of Porgy and Bess. He traveled the world performing and sharing his gift. And until his retirement in 2013, he was the director of the Martin Luther King Spiritual Choir at College in Vermont. And Francois worked closely with Fred Rogers for over 30 years, and he shares his story in his memoir, Officer Clemens, which I just finished, and I could not put this down. I really, really love this book. So if you're a fan of biographies and people's real-life stories, you definitely want to pick this up. It's, it's both a personal and a spiritual journey. So I'm so happy to welcome Francois today to the show to talk about it. Welcome, Francois. Well, thank you very much. That's a really nice introduction. How much do I owe you? It sounded wonderful. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a nice guy. <laughs> you are. Well. You're a nice guy. And you've had quite an amazing life, and I've been spending a lot of time with you over the past couple of days. And I was serious when I said I, how much I really enjoyed the book. I, I particularly love biographies. I love to read about their, other people and their lives. And, you mm-hmm. know, your story, ju- your story just really stuck me in. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, really an, an emotional ride. You're very authentic and frank in the book. You share a lot of your, your personal stories in your life. 
and and also just being of the age of where you know growing up i did spend a lot of time in, in mr rogers neighborhood mm-hmm. um you know i watched you on the show and you know i loved fred rogers and you know i just felt so much nostalgia and, and remembrance when the movie came out, the documentary. I saw the documentary first, then the movie with Tom Hanks. Right, right. I actually, mm-hmm. you know, just saw recently. So it brings back oh. all of those memories and, and feelings and and just a, a lot of things, you know, coming up from, uh, you know, watching the show and just kind of remembering that time. And you know what really struck me, though, I have to say, Francois, I was reading what? the book. Um, you know, how timely and important that your story is to share, you know, particularly now, you know, we're celebrating June being Pride Month um, and, the, you know, the current yeah. climate. And, you know, there was mm-hmm. so much as I was reading the book um, of your experiences, and, and we can share that as we go through the, the hour of the show today. You know, as I was reading the book, just how much like how far we've come, but how far we haven't come, you know, exactly. that we still need to improve on. Um, experiences that you had, you know, back as a college student in the 60s that we're kind of reliving mm-hmm. today, you, j- just really kind of blew my mind as I was reading it. It was, it was really interesting to see the, I guess, the juxtaposition. The, the timeliness, you know, and yeah. uh, you can't plan that. That's very uh, universal. That came from the universe somewhere because it was supposed to have been uh, published about a year or so earlier, but uh, the people that um, catapult my uh, publisher felt that there were some details and some preparations like that that they just weren't quite on top of and they wanted to put it off. And at first I was disappointed, but I had such excellent conferences with them and preparing the book that I felt. There must be something about their judgments, you know, and their uh, feelings about this that I should expect. I've never published anything this significant. So I said, I'm going to take my lead from them. And so I went along and we didn't do it until May 5th. And isn't that interesting? We, we finally got it published, but nobody could go and be together and shake hands and get hugs and kisses and say how beautiful they might have felt or something uh, because it was this, uh, you know, this uh, virus that separated everybody. And uh, so, but I do think about the issues in the book that I uh, focused on, uh, the challenge of being a black, boy in America, the speeches that I got from my relatives about how to survive. I mean, that's as relevant today as anything I said in the book. Uh, it's just always been like that. And uh, I got it from so many of my caring, loving, nurturing relatives. And quite frankly, I've given it a couple of times. And I didn't think I'd ever do that. But uh, so I, I, I dealt with Fred. Uh, about the racial problem very openly because that was a very painful part of my life. So that idea, and also then just the challenge of being in theater. I mean, every actor and actress can tell you how rough it is in the beginning unless you happen to be one of the incredible lucky ones or your family has money or some other accident of, of nature. Yeah, getting into a show, getting onto the stage is not an accident. It's not. It's very, very difficult. And it's, it's made worse for a black actor uh, or actress who comes to, sometimes you don't even get to go to the audition. They've already cast it or they have an ideal, you know, type casting as we call it. So a lot of times, you know, I'm not the Italian this or, or Greek that or anything. I'm a black American man. So I, I didn't fit stereotypes. And uh, sometimes you're going up uphill. So painfully slow. 
I didn't realize it was that hard when I was in college that I would have that much difficulty when I left because I worked hard in college and I was rewarded. My voice teachers and coaches and conductors, people like that, if I did a good job, I honestly feel that they knew it and they uh, blessed it. And then I get to New York and I try the same uh, formula and it doesn't work like that. And the first thing was that I was excluded. I, I had no idea that I was being excluded because I was so naive. And the friends would say, why weren't you at the audition last night? Why weren't you over at the, the theater? You just going to the concert. Well, I didn't know anything about it. What? How could you not? Well, eventually they said to me, that conductor, that producer, that director said, please don't mention this to anybody black. They told me that. I thought, well, I'll be damned. How am I supposed to get in there? Well, we came up with an ingenious plan, and it was one of my very, very extraordinarily wonderful friends, David Griffith and uh, Max, Max and uh, uh, Joe. Uh, I hung out with these guys and David uh, uh, Holloway. There were like five or six of them. We were hangout buddies. And we'd go to these Irish bars and have a beer together after rehearsals and stuff. And they said, Francois, we don't like that you're being left out. That's not right. It doesn't. None of us like it. We've talked about it. We've come up with this idea that there's going to be a production of La Traviata at the Polish uh, Community House in Manhattan on Fifth Avenue. And I, I learned the part of Alfredo in that opera. And David had gotten the audition and did not feel it was right for him. He was a big Wagnerian-voiced man, and there was a lot of delicate singing in that Traviata that broke, just tore him apart. So he said, you're going to do this. And they literally came to my house and taught it to me. We had so much fun. Beer and Traviata, it worked. So then after I learned it, uh, I went to the, um, uh, oh, they, they called me the day before and said, oh, my goodness, we're desperate. Our tenor leave has canceled. Can you help us out? Do you know Alfredo in Traviata? I said, well, yes, of course I do. Uh, you performed it. I said, yes, I performed it, which was not true. But I'm not going to tell her. She would have hung up the phone. That would be the end of our conversation. So she says, uh, do you know the cut? I said, yes, David called me and he gave me the cut. Can you be at rehearsal tomorrow? Let's say 2 o'clock. And the performance is at 7 or 8. I said, yes, to everything. So the next day, I go over to the, uh, the, the performance in the community house, which had a beautiful theater inside. And I, when I walked in, people are saying, well, well, who are you? Uh, what are you? What are, what are you doing here? And I said, uh, I, I'm coming to do La Traviata. Uh, there's, a, there's a performance of it today at a dress rehearsal. And they said, Yes. What, what, what does that have to do with you? Oh, I'm I'm singing Alfredo. What? Oh, you're kidding. No, I'm singing Alfredo. Just a minute. Let me go get Mr. So and so, so and so. So he goes off and. I'm standing there thinking, oh, God, this is not going to work. Mrs. Franco comes out, hello, how are you? And I said, hello, I'm uh, Francois Clemens, and I'm going to sing Alfredo for you today. What? You're not Francois Clemens? I just spoke to him on the phone. What does that mean? You couldn't wow. have been the person I spoke to yesterday. Yes, ma'am, I'm the one. And I began to quote little phrases and things that she had said about preparing for the role and what to bring, you know, my tuxedo, because you're going to have to change, blah, 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 blah. And she, she just stood there literally with her mouth 
that was a very, very painful experience for me. And um, maybe a height of embarrassment for her. I did the performance, and I got, literally, they were giving all of us as a company standing ovations. I sang very well. I'm proud. I'm happy of what I did. I think afterwards, David and Joe and all those guys insisted that we celebrate. We said, that's a great thing, Francois. Let's go on, and we're taking to the, you know, the beer drinking out with the guys carrying on. But it taught me a very, very important lesson about what friendship can get you in life. It can open doors that you can't, you can't shoot it down with a, a cannon. Uh, people are so rigid and so impossible. But these friends had me, you know, set it up, and I walked right in. And I don't like to say this, but I must tell you the truth. It happened three or four times like that. So just really they were shocked that a black person, well, that, a black man would want, would be able to sing a role. Yes, to come in there and do the same. You know, I had the same training. I'm, I'm just as smart as any of those guys, and I studied languages and movement on stage and all that kind of stuff. I, um, you know, after that performance of Traviata, they hired me four to four more productions. And the thing about that company was they paid very well. So, you know, a lot of the singers on my level were uh, struggling to get in there. That was a couple thousand dollars. And that was a big fee back in, you know, in the caveman days. So I was very, very, very happy to get that fee. And that's not right that only white people were getting that fee. And uh, they were systematically excluding black people. Now, I, what I say to people is multiply that all over this country, that there are un, unpleasant, unhappy people who exclude black people from participating in a full range of the society. And they're the first right. ones to say, oh, I'm not prejudiced. I'm not racist. I don't know. No, I'm not. And someone else said it, so I'll just repeat it. They said, Let's count the numbers. Let's get the numbers together. Because if what you're doing continues to bring the same results, we're doing something wrong. We have got to change the formula. And that right. formula has to, in, in, uh, by force, you know, it, it, it must include minorities. It must. So, and you share so many of of those stories and memories in the book, and it's <laughs> some of it's some of it's difficult to to read, you know, and really understand. But also very sad that we're, you know, have we come full circle? Are we still kind of at? I guess we're we're at another place of reckoning, kind of like you described going through in the '60s, you know, in your in your college years. Yeah. Um, Yep. In, in that in that arena, and you write about that so beautifully in the book, in in sharing mm-hmm. your experiences. You know, it, it's it's really eye opening. So I wanted people to get, you know, a little bit of an idea of your your journey. You know, your background. Like you you came from like some some hard scrabble times. You oh know, yeah, on the other difficult, side of the track, difficult I things. It. Yeah, yeah. The, the other side of the tracks. Uh, I did. Definitely, I you did. know, some dif- difficult um, situations that you went through, you know, with your family. And mm-hmm. do you think? Do you think that did this 
Well, I think also, do you think also this opened you up to like the, the beauty and, and freedom of music? Cause it seemed like at that, at that time, like going through those difficult things in your childhood, you were kind of opened up and made aware of your musical talent and your ability mm-hmm. and, and was music, was music able to be kind of a savior for you in yeah, that sense? Yes. yes. The music was the thing that uh, kept me from going crazy and jumping off the bridge because uh, from Second grade, I think it was, Miss Sanders was my teacher in second grade. She was the one who really made me feel that I could sing. I had a sweet voice, and she was a great sense of humor when she teased us as a class. And uh, she put on Thanksgiving, a Thanksgiving production was the first, one of the main ones that I remember. And I had so much fun. And everyone was even teasing me about what, you know, what a good ham I was, and I didn't realize what a good hand I was, but uh, it really was um, a case of discovering myself through the arts, through music, and I'm so grateful uh, that I had that opportunity because so many things literally flowered out of that uh, experience with my teachers. You know, I was very, very shy because I was a bruised uh, child because of my parents who uh, fought like wild, crazy people, and and they kept coming back together, and maybe two or three months, there'd be some reasonable peace, and then they'd start fighting again. And it was like a nightmare. I'd wake up screaming, my mother was screaming, and my brother was screaming, all of us. And my dad was behaving like a wild, crazy man. And um, it, it traumatized me, and we all know about that. I did not get begin to go into those heavy problems until I was about 24 years old, because I couldn't, I couldn't face the... Uh, the pain, the humiliation, the, the the sense of deep loss of my childhood, from because there was always some s going on, and my grand my great grandmother Laura May arranged for us to get out of there, and uh, head for Youngstown, Ohio, and so we snuck away literally to into the taxi and all naive young Francois says, "Where's Daddy? Where's Daddy?" And eventually I got slapped. Shut up. Don't ask any more of those questions. Nobody said, let me explain, little man. Let me tell you what the problem is, because that would have made a hell of a lot of difference. I still might have felt deep pain, but I would have thought, oh, daddy's not going to come because he fights all the time. I mean, a child might translate what they're saying. And so to make a long story short, when I went to school, I was was bleeding, and uh, I didn't know why. I didn't understand, and I was shy and withdrawn. I am not shy, but that shows you the kind of pain that I was in. And to make a long story short, my teachers nurtured me. They coaxed me out of that shyness and began to ask me to sing things. And as they asked me to sing things, I used my little peep, 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 peep voice. <laughs> and I literally had a, a, a different kind, but the same thing with music with my grandfather, Saul, who um, was my well, I don't know, first babysitter that I was I remember and he used to take me down to the creek with him when he would fish. And all I would do is walk with him for the distance and then sit down and be careful to try not to go to sleep. Because if I went to sleep I missed uh, the the talking uh chain that he uh walked with which much later I learned that that was not a chain talking, that was my grandfather. And so I sit and I listen and think, and I could hear his voice. Oh, that was granddaddy all the time. <laughs> but 
He told me the the magic cane was talking. So I believed him. I believed him because I loved him, and I never questioned. And there was a discussion in our family about it. Stop talking to that boy like that. Stop telling him that uh, there's a fantasy and magic and stuff like that. That's not real. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and later on I said, Grandpa, am I the only one that you told this about the, the, the magic chain and what it says and about me and us and black people? He said, yes, you're the only one. I said, oh, is that our secret? Yes, he said, that's our secret. They don't know what we're talking about, so don't say anything around them anymore. And but that's he gave how we... you that belief in magic, right? Like yes. That... Yes, he yeah. did. They didn't want me to, but he did. And not only that, but that I was somebody. He kept saying, don't you ever let them tell you that you're not. You come from African kings and queens, is what he used to say. And he used to tell me that and say, uh, your, your uh, African country was Benin. And I had never heard of Benin, you know, anything like that. So he would say, well, near, near, in Central Africa, it's, it's near Nigeria and, and Ghana and Cameroon. He named those countries. And I remember hearing him name those countries. Uh, that had a profound influence on me, not just the loss of my grandfather, but the information, the incredible information. And I think I, I can't, my my great 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 grandfather was a king. We're, we're not just slaves, so that's very special. And somebody was a, would be a queen in Africa. Yeah, I held on to that desperately. Oh yeah. Because well, you it, could it, tell in in reading that story. I mean, you could tell how meaningful it was when you were talking mm-hmm. about you know, Grandma Laura, uh, Laura May and Granddaddy mm-hmm. Saul and, you know, the influence that, that they were on your life and the strong female energy that you had around yes. you growing up. Yes. And I thought how how interesting that, you know, as a, as a young boy, you had these experiences. And then when you fast forward to what you did later in life and, you mm-hmm. know, meeting Fred, and one of the things that was important to Fred was, uh, you know, having children believe in magic and that they were special and that they meant something, you know, and there's no one like you, you know, things that mm-hmm. your yes, grandfather yes, was saying special. to you. There's only one in the world like you. And you, you may, yeah. I love you just the way you are. You make me happy. Right. But the other part of it was it's imagination as opposed to pure magic in that sense. And sometimes in your imagination, there's uh, delayed uh, gratification. It doesn't happen right away. But a friend was the first one who articulated that to me. You know, sometimes you have to wait, friends. Uh, you can do all of everything right, but it's not your time. Oh, well, oh, that's different. Yes, you said, have faith. I learned about those things in the practical sense of being with him and having him tell me, just wait, your turn will come, or something will come through around that particular thing that you desire so strongly. And Nobody's going to be heard, or you're not going to um, do anything illegal or, you know, immoral. But good things come. You just sometimes have to wait, friend. And I think that was a very important thing that I learned with him and from him. Just be willing to wait. Um, there are lots of things that happened to me that way, where it's like the next year, you know, before you got it. Uh, and even going to college before I met him. You know, it's four years, and that, that can be grueling years for a young person to wait, wait, <laughs> exams and oh, papers. 
So uh, his his uh, philosophy helped me develop a life, an attitude that would not be so stressful and drive myself crazy. He really was uh, a loving, patient man. Uh, he, he was a great listener. I, I very, very often when I'm working with my college children uh, and people who are my students here in uh, Vermont, I remember how important listening was. Fred was the world's greatest listener. Wisest listener. I mean, I can't tell you all the junk that I discussed with him, which were very important to me. As a young person, you know, developing and finding myself, and particularly in a society that kept telling me I was inferior, I wasn't as good, I couldn't make it, you're not one of those, you don't belong there. I heard all that crap. And his patience and his kindness helped me to put that where it belonged and not invest. That's the word, not invest so much in what people were saying and listen to my inner voice, listen to my inner thought, my my prayerful self that was in contact with God. It, 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 it was a change in my life. I've had several major um, uh, things like that happen to me when I first went to Oberlin, it was a big change, and when I went to uh, Carnegie Mellon and met Fred, it was another life-changing encounter. Do you feel that those people come into your life uh, is that predestined? There's there's a reason, or are we open to it and attract those people to us? Uh, well, first of all, I think there's uh, definitely accidental things that are nice and lovely that happen in life. But when you've got your eyes set on something, you're focused. It's a big difference when you're focused, as opposed to you know catch as catch can. The numerical things that you'll get, there'll be numerical things that you don't get. But if there's something you want or you feel is important that you uh, meet up with that experience, I think what you have to do is sit down and get clear. I remember one of my friends in New York, one of his girlfriends, and he was young, and I thought, well, now, this is what I would do. I would sit down, I'd get a a tablet and some writing paper, and I might write out. I want a, a beautiful girlfriend who is bilingual, who is Latina, or she's uh, not as tall. I'm not tall, so I don't want her to be too tall. I want someone I can talk with about the things that's going on. And I'm lonely, and I'm, I'm hoping that she'll want to spend time with me. Well, I sat with him, and we prayed, putting those things out into the universe. And I think uh, maybe two weeks. Before he called me up, he was so excited. <laughs> he came over to visit me. He said, I got a girlfriend. And I remember to this day uh, when I met her, what a wonderful girl she was. And I said to her, man, you've got this to pray for. And you have to understand that principle. There's other things that you want to do, you need to do. Uh, and as it turns out, he did. He finished high school that way. He had to sit. But there were lots of distractions in the inner city, lots of them. And I honestly yeah. didn't think he was, he was going to make it. But he told me he sat down. And he, he told God that he wanted to finish high school. And he did. That, and that's he an has. important principle. That's an important to explore. We're going to take a short break, so to hold that thought. There's lots more for to discuss oh, okay. and uh, chat with you about. So we'll be just uh, a few minutes. We'll be right back. I'm Diane Ray, and thank you so much for listening today. My guest, Twark Clemens. We'll be right back. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, 
the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. I'm Diane Ray. Welcome back. Thanks for joining me after the break here. My guest today is Francois Clemens, and you might remember him if you're uh, of a certain age (laughs) or maybe not (laughs) from uh, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And he was a close friend of Fred Rogers for many years, and he created the role of Officer Clemens on the TV show. And you might remember the one episode where they shared the pool of uh, their feet in the pool of water, which you would probably think is not a big deal today, but at the time uh, was actually kind of controversial for a, it was. a white person. Uh, it made a and big a black impression. Person, on, it made right? a big impression. To have on their people. feet in yes. the pool. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah. And it's funny but, how we think now that, that that would be no big deal, you know, but uh, at, at the time it really was. No, yes, but totally, I, but let, let me say this. If I saw a program on television, I'd want to know why those two black men and white men had their feet in the same pool. Because we have so much uh, physical, we have so much um, uh, uh, physical possessions and things we can buy and make, plastics and all that. So he can have one over there and I can have one over here. Why are we putting our feet in the same one uh, in his yard? It has a certain authenticity. With, when you think of the time that it was done, but I honestly don't know how well it was received today. I think people might be a little too cynical. But back then, Fred Rogers held one's attention, and he spoke his truth to power, and people listened. They paid attention. So he was saying something very special. Because when he sent me that transcript for that show, I was a little annoyed because I wanted something more active, something uh, more up like like having a protest march, go to the swimming pool, <laughs> go to the swimming pool and challenge those people who were, maybe take a shotgun with me, a pistol. I was so mad. That's how angry I was. And Fred calmed me down. I just calmed down. We, uh, there are many ways to, you know, to deal with these kinds of things. And violence is not necessarily it. So we just uh, know that there are people who are thinking about what you're talking about and we'll come up with a solution. I think he came up with a brilliant solution. It was almost too subtle for me. Because I felt such a uh, fatherly, sonly. He was the father, I was the son. I felt such an attachment, relationship, love to him that it wasn't quite so spectacular to sit there and put our feet in the same water. But uh, on television, it was like something private that we might do and that other everybody was looking at to see it. I didn't understand its spiritual context. That's where I grew between the first one and the second one because Freddie and I, when I came to the studio, whether to uh, perform or to visit uh, with him, he and I used to go off to the side, and we would have these incredible biblical discussions. I had uh, studied the Bible very uh, intimately in uh, the Baptist church. We believed in quoting scriptures, and I read the Bible like three times. I memorized uh, chapters and relationships and all that stuff. It was very heavy. Fred went to seminary, and he did the same thing. So we had an equal understanding, for the most part, for the most part, of Scripture and its deep implications. And one of the ones was about the, the bricks, that the bricklayer who was building the brick builder said, this is a flawed brick. I throw it away because I can't use it. And the universe picks that brick 
and said, I will take the one that's been thrown away, that's useless, that's worthless, and I will build my church on this. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Fred and I talked about that, and I have to tell you, I'm, I'm no longer as shy as I used to be. I was the rich. I was the one who was broken, who was thrown away. I'm black, I'm gay, I'm poor, I don't have blue blood, and I'm trying to move into an area where everybody says, what are you doing here? These are not your people. Uh, You should be doing, you know, less and so and something else. And he would look at me and tell me that. Don't you ever let anyone tell you that you're worthless, that your color of your skin makes any difference in terms of your heart and your excellence and your, your understanding and your love. All of those things make you just as relevant as anybody else. There were lots of people around there trying to tell me what I was capable of doing or qualified for or I should, uh, I should aim for. They had me on a very low uh, position. And I refused to do it. I refused to be dumb. Uh, I knew when my life depended on it, but I also knew when I was just challenging somebody's racial prejudice. And he gave me that courage by saying, no, you are somebody, you are special. You are the brick Francois, and everything that it implies. Wow. Well, you can tell in, in the book when, with the stories that you share of, of the interactions with Fred, I was kind of thinking of him as, I guess you could call it a velvet hammer in a way, you know, uh, in how mm-hmm. he would stand up for you and, and protect when he was and he was gentle, but he could be strong when he had to, like incidents yes. to share where he was. you were yelling. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, the velvet hammer. The velvet hammer, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's a wonderful description of what he was because he was soft spoken, but he could be as rigid about something he wanted to do or when he wanted to do it, how he wanted to do it, with whom he wanted to do it. Uh we we spent so much time together, we were like a family. It's like trying to talk to dad. You know, mom was there, and you say, I want to do this, I want to do that. And mom said, No, you can't do it. No. Well, I'm going to ask dad, No, your mother said, No, you cannot do it. And there's a reason for that. He was tender, soft, gentle, but sometimes very firm. I think that issue about my being gay on the show was one of those velvet glove issues because he told me something I very much did not wish to hear. But by being quiet and trying to find his wisdom, which was ahead of mine, I I began to to grow. Something inside of me said, you haven't lost everything, because that that was part of it. You think I'm going to lose something. Uh, Being on that program was a huge uh, gift to me, a huge gift to the black community, which did not really have very many... uh, Black programs on television that people speak of. There right, or, or characters. There are definitely weren't characters. any on, on children's no, 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 programs. That's right, none of that. So I, I didn't want to lose that. I, I recognized what the universe had given me. I also joined uh, Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, as a person. And I realized when I got with them, because I talked to them, they had meetings. I was the only black person, actor, member. There were two guys who were cameramen. One, I'm sorry, one was cameraman and the other was a sound. And that was it. And, uh, you know, if you've got 200, 250, 300 people who show up for very, very special meetings and occasions, 
it's a bigger deal in a place like Pittsburgh than it would be in New York City. Uh, but nevertheless, when I went to that first meeting and I looked around and there was nobody like me, I thought, wow. Right. Well, I wanted, I wanted you to share the story that you relate in the book uh, about about Fred. And as much as he he loved you and championed you, you know, he did have a conversation with you about your sexuality and the show. And it, it was kind of interesting to me when you related the story in the book, when Fred called you in his office and he said someone had seen you in a bar, which made me think, hmm, who was it that saw you and what were they doing in that bar? Yes, <laughs> but that, I, I guess that's, that's, another, that's another bar. story, right? But he was he do you feel he was trying to protect you in that in that sense that he didn't he said you can't be out to be on the show which which was hurtful and painful to hear i'm sure but do you think he oh, was very. trying to say that with with love yes i think I mean, was he, he was he, he worried he, he was trying to keep me in the family and at the same time help me to understand what what i was risking and what i was asking him to risk you see, he didn't think Johnson and Johnson and Heinz 57 uh, and Sears would continue to support his uh, uh, program if he had any traces or hints of homosexuality. I happen to think he's right. I grew up in Ohio, which is some people call the Bible Belt, down through you know Kentucky and Tennessee and the Mississippi and Alabama and all that. That part of the country is very rigid and unforgiving. I'm sorry, they consider themselves born-again Christians. And I find them to be very, very, very destructive with their condemnations and their damnations on what you can, what you can't do, what's evil, what's Satan, what's, you know. There's a whole litany of things that they don't approve of. But if they're doing something which is condemned in the Bible, they make excuses why they can do what they want to do. And so when I began to get to a certain age and I'd hear some of those sermons, I'd ask them, who, 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 who appointed you to decide that for everybody? Why do you get to make this? And they, they didn't like me challenging them like that. No, this is a free country. I'm sure. Yeah. I don't think the way you think. And I'm not going to condemn myself. I'm not going to kill myself. Goodbye. And so I began to withdraw from black Baptist churches but I found the same prejudice that that uh, Ukrainian Orthodox Church that I went to that minister didn't know me or anything and told me to get out. Uh, it wasn't a black situation. It was that during the time that was our society. And people felt they had a right to condemn and to judge. Uh, in my opinion, they did not. And that's part of what made me strong, that I sometimes had to stand up tall and say to someone, I am who I am, and I'm not ashamed. You cannot give that to me. I give it back to you. Uh, but you cannot treat me less than anybody else. And sometimes I just have to get out. I have to leave because it, it, uh, it could be dangerous, or it just wasn't the place right. where I wanted to be. I've never wanted to be somewhere where people don't want me. I don't ever want anything that doesn't belong to me. I have this thing about what's mine and what's not. And I let things go. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I work on not being a pack rat. <laughs> and uh, I, um, I see things all the time when people offer me something. And I thank them very, very much for being very thoughtful. But there, I say 50% of the time, I say, no, I don't need another T-shirt. I don't need another mug. Um, thank you very much. But in those uh, other situations, uh, 
with the, the ministers and people in the church. I didn't want to be there if they didn't want me there. Right. I truly did. I love being by myself with a bull, you know, like you uh, said. <laughs> no, me, I, I agree. But I, so I wanted I to, to ask be you because, mm-hmm. it, it, well, it's, it, it was obvious to me, like a very, it came through very strongly in, in the book, your deep faith. I mean, you really have an enduring faith in, in a higher power that is working for you in your life. And I just wanted to see how, like, as you look back, you know, when you were writing the book and looking over your journey, just what you're describing, how do you kind of reconcile that with people who that they're bad fearing and that, but yet can be so judgmental and, and hateful and hurtful, but under the guise of, well, this is what the Bible says. Yes, exactly. You know, and, then, and pulling certain scripture out and throwing that in your face and that kind of thing. Oh, boy, did they ever. Uh, I mean, several times I really got smacked. But um, the thing that uh, helped me, that healed me, that, that gave me the strength uh, was my own inner voice my own inner communication. And particularly, I discovered something when I sing. I'm not just singing. I began to invoke the very spirit of God. And the ladies in the church were the first ones to tell me, you've got a special key there, young man. When you sing, you are are in in place. You're there, and something happens. And they they said I was, uh, I had this special ability as a communicator. And I was very, you know, I was surprised. What do you mean? What are you talking about? I just sing the song. I try to do the best song, best possible job that I can. Well, I was unleashing something else. And that that something else is a spiritual level. Many people I discovered in my school and in my uh, church looked beyond my, my sexuality. At that point, they were saying, you know, this, this man has some kind of collision. There's something that he sends for us. He's not here on this level, on this plane. I've been saying that my entire life. And I understand because I had to get ready. It's almost like putting on my vestment to, to go before the Lord. And I, I always take it very seriously. But I can have fun. I can laugh like anyone else. But I get sleep that I need. I, I think that it's a grace that I've been given for the last 15 or 20 years, I've been uh, celibate. I don't like it, but I do. I can tolerate it because I have such a commitment to my journey, to my uh, job, my money, avocation and vocation, and my, why I came here. I have work to do. Don't bother me. <laughs> this is some nonsense. So uh, I am a very well-directed person, and as you say, even as a child, I discovered you know, we all have different gifts. Some people can draw, some can dance, some can ice skate and play football or whatever. I, this was one of my gifts that I discovered with those ladies that when I sing, that's my, I, I'm present. I'm, I'm here. Yes, yes, sir, I checked in. Yes, ma'am. Leave a and is that when you, feel, when you feel closest to God at that moment? Yes, do you, I do. Do you really feel that? Mm-hmm. Oh, do I ever. Now, interesting about that, because in in my writing over, let's say, the last 10 years, certainly, I invoke Fred. His spirit of Fred Rogers helped me write this book, I swear. Uh, I would sit here, I'm at my desk, and when I would sit here, 
I would feel this um, gentle, it's not nudging, it's not that prominent, but there, I, I suddenly realized that there was a presence with me. Nothing negative, just, hmm, I'm not alone. What, what is this? What's that? I would get quiet because it was never negative. It was uh, something I was very curious about. And ultimately, it turns out to be Fred, his presence. I said, well, I'm right. Are you helping me? You know, they don't talk to you, but there's a feeling of what. Right. <laughs> you can tell. Well, yeah, you said, you said in, the, in the introduction that he, he believed that you would meet again, that you, you really we felt that you wanted again. to write the story. Oh, mm -hmm. my goodness. We, are, we have met so many times again, and it is a deeply satisfying, deeply satisfying experience. I was there before at 5 o'clock at night because I love being in an atmosphere with him and seeing what I did. You know, I put down notes sometimes because it's too much to go into it uh, right away. But other times I would actually write and say, well, what, what's the next story? I sit very quietly, and he helped me with uh, which stories I should share. Uh, quite frankly, it was about 6,000 pages worth of stories. And then I had to find me an editor. So I said, nobody's going to read all those stories. <laughs> Who do you think? Your mother doesn't <laughs> you... want to read 6,000 pages about you. So you had to <laughs> and pick I know the best. she doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so I, That's great. But I saw some wonderful uh, editors and uh, a book doctor. And the only thing I tell you is that Book Doctor was the best you could ever have in the whole world. But it was also so damn expensive. Nobody else I can rec I Several people have spoken to me and they can't afford it. I think it was worth the price to work with the best. Everyone has to decide that for himself or herself. But uh, a Book Doctor uh, asked me so many questions like you and I are talking. And he listened and he took notes. He said, I only have one requirement of you, Dr. Clemens, and that is, please tell me the truth the first time. He said, because I'm going to ask you questions about yourself. Some may be embarrassing or awkward for you. Maybe you've never discussed some of these things with somebody else. But he read the, the full manuscript. He wanted to know what is important and what is not. I want to know who you are. And he said, I'm like a psychiatrist or a doctor. I'm, I'm a lawyer. I'm pledged to secrecy. I keep my mouth set. You do not see my name in the papers or on a magazine. Don't say that stuff. Then my job is to stay out of the way and let you do your thing, but do it within a certain context, like maybe 300 pages and not, not 6,000 pages. That was so funny. Well, you told so him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You told a beautiful story. I mean, I could see where you have to <laughs> weed weed through things, you know, and, and pick out the best. And I think you did a, a really a really great job, you know, and gave us a real beautiful uh, kind of behind the scenes look of what you know what your life is like, and also you know what it was like working with Fred. And what do you think? I mean, if if people are around us all the time, our loved ones. I mean, what do you think Fred would would think or or feel? I mean, you feel his presence, you said, you know, when, when you get quiet. Um, yeah. I'm just wondering, like, what would he think of what's what's happening now? And Well, you know, can the, we... the first thing I do, I, because lots and lots of people all over America have asked me that question. But I basically uh, start out with, you know, you are the one who's here now. I'm the one here. We have to solve this problem. Fred Rogers is not going to help us. He gave us ideas. He gave us remedies. He gave us things to think about. He was the guru, the wise one. But he didn't have to get down here in the, the grubs with us protesting and all that. That was not uh, the great 
that consciousness was a different time. And he's not here now. The tools that he gave us, we must use them. And part of that is listening. I think that's the greatest thing a white man can do in this culture today. Listen. Because there are people screaming, women's rights, gay rights, unions, uh, health care. We're saying a lot of things in this society. And the people with the authority and the money and the power are not following through for the, the people who are, the, the widow who's naked, the kid who's hungry, and so the, uh, the servant who, who, who can't get any dental work or has a, a, a growth on his throat or his knees or something. Those are things that people who have not are, are required to address themselves to. This is all the nonsense that's going on, building another temple uh, to yourself and putting your name up there in gold. That doesn't help the man that the Bible impetus to come. Come with your tired and your poor. That's biblical. When the stranger knocks at your door and says, I'm hungry, you go back there and you get that bread. And you bring it and you feed it to him or her. She's come a thousand miles walking because she was afraid for her life and her child's life. And then you tell me she needs to go back and get in line? No. How dare you call yourself a Christian? Right. Those, it, it's, and, but it seems so simple, right? You know, if someone yeah. is hungry, you feed them. If if people need help, you help them and and love them. And I and I My think dear. even those simple lessons that that Fred said on his show to tell children, we we need to remember those. Yes, yes, yes. It was the, and even with the, the Christ, suffer little children to come unto me because such are the kingdom of God. I mean, he says. It. And Fred said it. Fred taught us a certain way to communicate, to talk to the youngest, the most vulnerable among us. We must protect. We must care. We must all this other junk that people are talking. I'm sorry, but I don't have any patience with it. <laughs> I'm sorry because I sometimes come off as mean, and uh, uh, I don't think I'm mean, but I think I'm focused on what's important. I don't like frivolity, and I'm not a frivolous person. I know that Fred knew that. When I, I met him, you know, he asked me to be <laughs> to come on his show. And I said, Mr. Rogers, I will be very glad to sing on your show as long as it doesn't interfere with my singing. I swear to God I meant that. And he said, Sunset, that was the moment that I loved you. That That's great. <laughs> he said, everybody around here is kissing my ass, but you're not going to. I know it. I was more to him than people realize. I was the son that he was raising, that he was giving a, a, a future destiny, giving me my, my assignment. But I was also someone who could stand with him on the ecclesiastical diet. We, right. we understood that. And, it, it and was P, a I don't think... Hmm? Well, I was going to say, I don't know if people remember that he was an ordained minister. So he he knew, he knew that. Yes, he did. He taught me a lot. He was, uh, he was a little bit more into uh, scriptures. And the, the prodigal son was another one we talked about. Ruth and Naomi we talked about. Um, who was it? Jonathan and David were lovers in the Bible. Uh, the Songs of Solomon. I get, you know, I, I carry a little, a little Bible with me. Because I, I thought he was going to make some reference, and I don't know what he's talking about. I got to go and find <laughs> You'd it. You'd look it up? 
Uh, yeah, That's I would strange. find it. I would, and that was part of the fun sometimes. That he would come up with some strange stuff from uh, Micah or one of the other uh, minor prophets in the Old Testament. But I love to hear him talk about that and talk about the compassion and the love that we must have for one another. Over and over, he says me in different ways. But we we belong to each other, Francois. We cannot possibly be separated. What is this nonsense? That's such a beautiful thought. And, you know, we have just like a minute or two left to uh, wrap up the show. I could chat with you all day. I wish I could just come Life on. Life-wise, I'm telling <laughs> We you. could have some tea, <laughs> tea or coffee, and, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> just sit there and chat. But, um, you can always we call my manager just... later. I will. We have just two minutes left, but I mean, it's such a beautiful message to, to kind of wind down on that, you know, he, he believed that we really are one and we need to help and love and understand each other. And Mm -hmm. the first way to do that is to listen. And that's a a big lesson I'm taking away from our conversation today. And I'm going to try to remember that, you know, in in Mm -hmm. my work and in my life, you know, just sometimes you need to shut up and listen. So what is the best place that I know you're retired and probably loving life. And and I'm jealous of that. Let me tell you. (laughs) Can uh, people can find the I live in the middle of Vermont and I have a nice little uh, ranch house, three bedroom ranch. Uh, I built this huge front porch on the, the front porch is almost as big as the house, and I covered it and put a glass in clothes. And I spend a lot of time out there with my little doggy walkie because, the, uh, you know, you can be outside, but you're actually being protected. It rained like hell this morning, and I got oh, up wow. and walked out there. I love the sound on the, the roof of the rain, and I it held out to my little doggy. Oh, it was wonderful. And I, I put a and bed Vermont out there. And I put, is beautiful. Pardon? Oh, and Vermont. Oh, and Vermont is just so beautiful, and, and you're, you're so blessed to be out there. So, it Francois, is. thank you so much for joining us. We're just wrapping up, but I want people to pick up your book. I mean, you've got a story to tell, and I really hope people spend some time and read it. Officer Clemens, it's available right now. Francois Clemens, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. You're amazing. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.